for those of us who are in the chronic disease world and we've we're struggling with chronic disease and maybe we're on the other side finally we've become disillusioned with the conventional care model that is in place today what happens when you are inside that model for years and then become disillusioned what does that look like what how do you try to change it you know where do you go from there once you've realized how horrible the system is and how it's really just sick care and not health care. That is what our guest today is going to walk us through. Graham Atkinson is an amazing man and he is pharmacologically trained. He was high up in the UK government-run health care and became disillusioned. And today he's going to share with us his story, what he's learned, and where he's going from here. It is an incredible interview you are not going to want to miss. He has so much wisdom to impart with us today, and I'm so excited to introduce you to him. Welcome to the Therapeutic Food Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Mitchell. I'm an integrative nutrition health coach, therapeutic diet expert, and founder of The Road to Living Whole. There are many different diets out there. It's hard to know which one is right for you with your chronic illness and autoimmune disease. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you the foundational pieces every single therapeutic diet out there shares, and also how to use the best one for your particular diagnosis. If you've been looking for a meal planning partner, help navigating the complicated healthcare system, and want to feel better quickly, I'm your girl. Grab your kombucha and notebook. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's go ahead and dive into who you are and your story and what kind of brought you to the holistic health side of things. Well, thank you, Marion. I've I've got the tingles already. I'm I'm somebody who gets tingles when um, when the truth appears in the room, shall we say? So uh, I've, I've it started already, which is um, lovely. So thank you for the invitation. I'm I'm delighted to be speaking with you and your and your audience. So yeah. So who am I? I'm. Um, I guess I was the archetypal system guy. Um, I'm, I was born in the UK in 1965. I qualified as a pharmacist in 1988. And I went down the sort of traditional sort of high street chemist, high street pharmacy route for a good 15 years. I then joined the National Health Service in the UK, so um, the NHS. And for a good 15 more years, I was a director of commissioning. So my, my role was to essentially performance manage the whole healthcare system in my area for populations of um, a quarter of a million up to you know, nearly half a million people. And that, that was everything from primary care, uh, community care to emergency care in hospitals, cancer services, specialist tertiary services, and everything in between. It was a whole system, including public health. We then had a change of government in the UK and things got shaken up a bit. And I chose to leave because I didn't really like the direction of travel. And I spent three years working as a consultant for the pharmaceutical industry around London, which opened my eyes somewhat further. We can come back to this, I'm sure. Um, I, after three years of that, I'd had enough and I rejoined the NHS in a more local role. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a change agent at heart. I love making change for, for the betterment of people. And I was still searching for the place where I could actually bring about change. So I went, I tried nationally and regionally and not really got very far. So I went back to my roots locally and had some success locally. And um, I was headhunted, if you like, by a local general practice, by the doctors. And I joined them as a business manager in 2019 and became a partner in the business because general practice here, even though they're part of the NHS, they're still an independent business. So I actually invested in the business just basically as the, as the COVID, let, let's call it a pandemic for now, arrived. Um, and I was properly scared for about three weeks, four weeks until I realized um, I'd been hoodwinked and my NHS programming had kicked in and I just followed the national message, if you like, done what I was expected to do. But once I started looking at the data, I started challenging the system, challenging my clinicians. And the more I looked, the more I found that said we weren't experiencing a pandemic at all. 
And the more I did this, the more I was opposed essentially. And to cut a very long story short, after about a year and a half, we had a big fallout and I decided to walk away. And for the last year and a half now, I've been focusing on the future and focusing on, let's say, true healthcare, you know, and the and the replacement of the allopathic system with what went before it, essentially, you know, all, all those good natural holistic healthcare modalities that were taught in universities until about 1913. So that's my focus now, Marion. And yeah, so we can, we can dive in wherever you like, but I'm essentially a system guy that let's say woke up, you know, had an awakening, fairly painful awakening in parts, but it did happen over, over many years. I, I was gradually probably from about 2010 onwards, I was starting to see the cracks in the system. But uh, yes, but I'm fully outside the system now. I've got no interest in it at all. I'm I'm able to speak my truth and the truth, which I greatly enjoy. I, you know, I feel like that's a lot of our stories, right? Is we come into <laughs> like this mainstream allopathic conventional model and we trust it, you know, but then we start seeing the cracks. And then over time, we just realize that none of it really works. You know, yeah. especially not when it comes to actual health, you know, when it comes to trauma, accidents, you know, stitching people back together, all of that, it's great. But when it comes to actual health, yeah. the, the the current system doesn't work. And I love your story. It was definitely a condensed version. Maybe we can talk about more. I mean, the pandemic was a breaking point, right? But what was it about that that really was the cat what was the catalyst that brought you to just completely shift from what you were trained in to holistic health and you know where have you gone with mm. that yeah so i suppose the my, my gradual if you like revealing of the cracks probably started in as i say 2010 when i realized that the healthcare system actually isn't about health and it's it's a business it's a money making business and i I realised that the politicians in the UK, and it's probably the same in most countries, um, I'd, I'd kind of seen them as, um, you know, let's just say they're stupid, they don't understand healthcare, and they're, they're being misguided. I then realised, because I, I had a national role, I then realised they weren't misguided, there was an agenda. And I initially thought it was an agenda all about money, and there, there was just, you know, big pharma, big food, and they were being lobbied very hard, and they were just doing what the lobbyists said and then I realized it's actually not just that it's something bigger there is something else at play and it, and it didn't really I couldn't see it back in 2010 I lost my own gut health um, in sort of 2015 2016 and I started doing my own primary research with together with my wife who's also a pharmacist and the two of us had a, an amazing two or three years where we were running diabetes recovery clinics for type two diabetics and we were just helping them understand what their condition actually is and what it isn't and helping them to remove the labels that had been applied to their foreheads by their doctor and we were reversing their type two diabetes so we we were i mean my my, my wife didn't lose her health i did and so i'd reverse i recovered my own health if you like and then i helped to share that knowledge so that taught me that most of the guidance in the healthcare system is actually rubbish as well the food guidance and the and i was chairing committees in the nhs i, I was chairing um, drug advisory committees for many years so i i was the the guy sat in in the committee of pharmacists and doctors and we were looking at you know primary research you know new drugs looking at the evidence deciding whether that drug worked and whether we were going to fund it in the local system so i'd i was very adept at reading primary research but I'd also been trained as a, uh, in the UK, what we call a gold commander. So if there is a national emergency, I was one of the poor people who would be locked in a bunker for, you know, uh, a long time, along with the army and the, you know, you know, other, other important people, and we would be running the country from a bunker. So when the pandemic, and I'll, I'll call it a pandemic, when, when that arrived, initially my NHS programming kicked in. And I saw my role as to help my practice. I mean, we had 25 doctors, 150 staff, 25,000 patients. I saw it as my role to help guide everybody through what was, I really believed was the one in 100 year pandemic. 
and I briefed everybody, made quite a few people cry, I expected probably two, maybe up to five doctors to die. We expected 500 patients to die. And this was sort of mid-March 2020. And then by early April, I'd realized that any of our patients who'd been admitted to our local COVID ward, and we're talking people well into their 80s and even their 90s, they admitted to the COVID ward and then they came home a week later, perfectly fine. We had a care home with outbreaks of COVID in care homes and we expected everybody to die. Nobody died. So I, I started then questioning the national message and quite quickly, I realized the government was lying to us as well, because there was, I realized straight away that many of the tried and trusted treatments for respiratory conditions were actually being withheld from patients and any clinicians that wanted to use them were being sanctioned. And that even applied to things like vitamin D and vitamin C therapy. And uh, our own health minister here in the UK um, made a statement on, in our parliament about vitamin D not being um, effective in COVID. And the next, very next day he had to go back and, and correct the official record of parliament because he, he'd actually misled parliament. And I knew then we were dealing with liars. And I then realized that there was something much darker at play here. It was, it was not just a case of um, we've fallen in line and the country has been misled. It's actually something much darker. And I then had a real dilemma because I thought, well, I can't openly say that with my colleagues. I've got to share enough of my doubts and in order to try and um, help them see what I could see. So I set about presenting data. You know, I'm a bit of a data nerd and I was pulling data out of our own practice system. I was pulling data off the government websites and I was presenting it to the doctors. And as far as I could, well, to anybody who was independently minded, the data showed that we'd already got past the peak. And this was in early April. Um, and I continued to do this all the way through the summer of 2020. And as we, as the autumn of 2020 appeared um, or neared, we were approaching our second lockdown in the UK. So I set about um, speaking a bit more, um, uh, a bit more aggressively, if you like, because I really didn't want the practice to be locked down again, because what I was saying to my GPs was that the lockdown is actually killing more of our patients than so-called COVID. And I could prove that. People who couldn't get access to healthcare, either in our practice or in the hospital, were dying. And dying at home, it was already happening. Um, and that all fell on deaf ears. And I was told to quiet myself, to toe the line and not, not bring attention to the practice as being in any way difficult, you know. So I considered leaving. This was the autumn of 2020. I really wanted to just walk away, which is not easy because as a partner, I was bought in. Um, and I was persuaded to stay by my family and by people who knew that I was trying to change the system. There were people, truth seekers, who said, look, we need you on the inside. So I said, fine, I will stay on the inside. And my next task was to open a mm. COVID vaccine center. So we opened a COVID vaccine center and I was the accountable operational director for the vaccine center. I genuinely thought we wouldn't get much of a take up in the vaccines because I'd already briefed my GPs about how potentially dangerous they were as even just the the modality, the new the new delivery platform, I think is the in phrase in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, never been used before in humans, untried, untested, you know, emergency use authorization, how far, you know, how how much do you need to say, you know, to say that from a pharmaceutical perspective, these are not tried and tested and they're potentially not safe and could be a lot worse. That all fell on deaf ears and our uptake was about 99% in the over 65 patients. And it absolutely broke my heart, Marianne. I, I was on the door watching these people come in. It was the middle of winter. They had snow on the shoulders. They were shivering. And uh, we had five patients who were over 100 walk into our practice and get their code vaccines. And what really hurt my heart was that it obviously meant so much to them. This, this was their ticket to freedom because they'd been in self-imposed prison in their own houses for about nine months at this point and they thought this was their ticket to for life to go back to normal and I knew it was anything but that so at that point my my physical and mental health started to take a turn for the worse the only way I could survive in my role was to completely compartmentalize my work from my home life and I actually identified work as being in the matrix 
and I literally saw myself from the movie, literally dialing into the Matrix every day, playing a role in a fictional reality, and then leaving that fictional reality and going back to my normal life. And that was the only way I could stay sane. And things gradually got worse. I was still desperately trying to change things for the better for my patients and my staff. And eventually it uh, got to the point where my, my, my partners voted uh, they had a vote of no confidence in me and voted me out. And I said, well, fine, I'm leaving anyway. And we parted ways at the end of October 21. Yeah, so that's uh, maybe a longer answer than you wanted. But that's so my awakening was quite, quite painful, but it was just so obvious to me. And I, what stupefies me to this day is how little the average person can see of what is obvious to me. I cannot imagine how stressful that was. And the, the toll that that took on your health, mentally, physically, emotionally, all of that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that it's, Pleasure. you know, like, like my brain is just like, I, you, you're basically all that training that you had from 1988 to then, like, that's a, that's a huge shift. And that's stressful. And on top of everything mm. else. I want to go back to the type two diabetes and how you reverse mm. that. And I know that I feel really strongly about how that is the gateway to other diseases. And I think that I would love to dive more into that and the role that we can play, play, you know, sure. insulin resistance and all that plays in overall health. Yeah, absolutely. So again, my, I'm a system guy, was a system guy. I was a pharmacist. I was taught that the human body is a bad bag of chemicals and that's it. You know, it's, you know, that we have drugs, we have receptors, we have, you know, metabolic processes, we have enzymes and it's just, we're just a bag of chemicals. I now know that's a small part of the whole truth and that as human beings, we are so much more than just a bag of chemicals and we can maybe go into that. But at the time that I was going into reversing diabetes, I was approaching it from a chemical, you know, biology point of view. So I, I mean, the, the, the health advice for diabetics in, in the UK type two anyway, is you, you need to eat your carbohydrates and, and even for type ones, you know, you, you titrate your dose of insulin based on how many carbohydrates you've had today. And I kind of went with this and, but it, 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 my cognitive dissonance really pricked my awareness probably in about 2013, 14. And I was, it, it was when I was working as a, as a pharmaceutical consultant. And I, I think I, I got a one job working for a drug company, making a new, you know, one of the very latest type two anti-diabetic drugs. And I was thinking, I just, this is just not correct. You know, this whole model of load yourself up with carbs and then use drugs to reduce the carbs, you know, that's just so counterintuitive. So started doing my own homework and with my wife, we looked at it and you realize that actually nearly all of the health advice, never mind the treatment advice for type two diabetics is 180 yeah. degrees wrong. So we, we set up something quite, you know, we just called them low carb clinics, you know, something fairly inoffensive to most people. And they were really popular with patients and the doctors and the nurses in the practice, they loved them because it was an outlet for these difficult patients that they didn't know what to do with. And we said, well, we'll take them off your hands. And we were running mm -hmm. sort of night school classes, you know, group classes and educating people in sort of holistic health. We, we did a bit broader than just low carb. You know, we did talk about healthy sleep and reducing stress and having the right nutrients and the absence of toxins, you know, so we did go a bit broader, but we didn't go into things like uh, grounding and synchronizing your body with, with the, with the light cycles in your area, you know, and reducing EMFs and all those sorts of things. That's, that came later, but we were tremendously sex, successful and we managed to get quite a few people, their code of diabetes removed from their health records. So they were no longer type two diabetic and they came off all their meds. That's amazing. And yeah, but it's not hard to do. I mean, we're talking four to six weeks in some cases right. for people who've been diabetic for years. Yeah. And they just looked so much better when they came in, you know, after a couple of months. And we then got these patients to become expert patients and train the next cohort. So we just sort of set up a, a rolling program, if you like. So that all worked very, very well. Um, the, we, the main obstacle we had with, was with dietitians. 
mm-hmm. uh, which may not surprise you. No, nope, not a surprise at all. <laughs> you know, we can, you know, I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners will probably know how dietitians are trained and who funds the training and where all that comes from. And uh, but um, we were act, we were both attacked by dietitians saying we were doing something that was dangerous. You know, we we were presenting them with data saying we've we've reversed type two diabetes, and they were attacking us for harming patients with this untried, untested, you know, diet, which was, you know, very interesting. So we had early success with, with type two diabetes, and then we kept researching and there's, there's, we, we, we sort of binge read and researched loads of great doctors out there. There's, there's, um, there's loads of American doctors. I mean, Ben Bickman, mm-hmm. you know, Sean Baker, you, you've got, another you know, you've got uh, Gary Fetke yeah. in Australia, you know, Tim Noakes, you know, all, all these, we, we were very well read on all of these doctors and we we became much more aware of you know metabolic syndrome as being you know and i, I see it re- as a gateway i mean if your body's not metabolically functioning well and that's not just about the chemicals is it it's about lots of other things which you could probably touch yeah, on yeah let's talk about um, that um let's talk about metabolic syndrome what what is that defined as and then what what goes in into that and and how does it run optimally what does it need yeah so i mean if i just start by saying many of the diseases that are categorized in the allopathic system i see as many years downstream of metabolic dysfunction Mm -hmm. you know and it uh, so there's metabolic dysfunction so when your body starts to not work optimally in a metabolic fashion so we're talking about principally the mitochondria in your cells. Hopefully your, your listeners will know what I'm talking about here. The, the little energy factories in, in most of your cells, if they are not working optimally, you start running out of energy. It's almost like you're a battery and your, start, your battery starts going flat. And you won't feel that at all, probably for many years. Your body's very good at uh, compensating for that and it will find ways of mitigating the lack of energy and it's many years, maybe decades further down the line that you will start to get what we call symptoms. And the allopathic system loves symptoms because it then gives them a label and a code, which is called a disease. And then the treatment is a drug or surgery or both. And that's how the allopathic system works. So, but if, if we could just go back to the time when your body starts to be suboptimal from a metabolic point of view if we could freeze time there and start to put in place the the core parts of what will help your body to work optimally which and obviously diet and nutrition is is a significant part of that and i would say that the diet that is right is the one that works for you and we're all different we're all individual we all come from different parts of the world and I think in a very general sense, if you eat whole food and if you eat food that comes from your area, it's local and it's also in season, I think those are all very important things. And I think if your grandparents or your great grandparents would recognize the food you're eating and buy it in a shop, that's a good sign. If your grandparents wouldn't recognize it as food, then it probably isn't food and it's what many people call a food-like substance which is wrapped in plastic and has a barcode on it. So avoiding food-like substances and eating whole food and what, whatever's right for your ancestral mitochondria, because I think, I, you know, I don't know too much about this, but I think that we've essentially got seven different types of mitochondria on the planet. They're, they're inherited through our, down our maternal line and there's much less variation in mitochondrial DNA than there is in, in nuclear DNA. So... If you're like me, I'm, I'm generally a sort of Northern European. I, I know that I come from the Northwest of Europe. If I was to move to uh, Japan and start eating Japanese local food, I, I would probably start to struggle, you know? Um, so it's, I think eating ancestrally what's right for you, even if that's different from what's available locally is probably a key to it as well. There's so many facets to this. I mean, so if you think of yourself as a battery, I th- I've come to greatly admire the work of Dr. Jack Cruz. Are you familiar with I'm, Jack Cruz? I'm not. Mm-mm. So he's American doctor, Dr. Jack Cruz, and he, he's done some amazing work on light. 
Okay. And the fact that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very inclined to believe now that as, as humans, our batteries, if you like, are, we are, what we're doing is we're holding light. Literally, we're holding photons. So, and those photons come, I mean, every, every food on the planet has come from the sun, hasn't it? So plants are grown from photons, animals eat plants. So it doesn't matter whether you eat plants or animals, everything's come from the sun. So the, the information encoded in the food you eat has come from the sun. And I think we, we have, uh, uh, you know, our, our mitochondria are part of the system that helps us absorb and uh, maximize the light in our bodies. And the more light we can hold, the healthier we are. So I think when we run out of photons and we, we, our batteries decline and we start to manifest symptoms and then we get given disease labels and it's a, it's a slow descent into polypharmacy, you know, multiple drugs, you know, you yeah. get the first drug, it does it. Your first drug will mask the symptoms and the, you and the doctor say, oh, it worked. Well, no, it didn't actually it just stop the symptoms. And something else is going to manifest next and then you get the second drug and third drug etc so yeah and i have seen in my in my career as a pharmacist i've seen the time when people's health declines to the point where they if you like submit to pharmacy and pharmaceuticals i've seen that age come down probably from the sort of mid 60s to in some cases the mid 30s mm -hmm. you see people in their mid 30s on several drugs and they look 10 15 20 years older than they actually are yeah and it's very sad, isn't it? So I think, and there's lots of causes for that. You know, the we could talk about Ansel Keys and and the the trans fats and all that, all that sort of uh, dark, you know, um, poor poor. Well, it wasn't poor, was it? It was in it was an intentional misleading of of the Western population to believe that fat is bad for you and uh, to hide the fact that sugar is actually bad for you. Yeah. So a lot of the people I see on the high street consume these drugs they've just been misled and i you know i to this day i still believe we can help a lot of them um, if we can reach them and give them some very simple understandable information about this this thing that we would call uh, metabolic dysfunction you know which leads to hyperinsulinemia so your, your body will secrete more and more insulin to cope with the carbohydrates that you're eating and increasingly can't metabolize and the greater levels of insulin then cause other diseases. I mean, cancers, you know, I mean, breast cancer cells have got way more insulin receptors than the normal breast cells, you know, and it's probably a good 80% of all diseases could be taken back to this hyperinsulinemia, to, to the metabolic dysfunction, and ultimately to the gut. And maybe we'll come on to gut health because I think it's Hippocrates said that everything starts in the gut. All diseases start there. Yeah. And certainly that was true with me. Lose your gut health and you're going to struggle, aren't you? Well, yeah. And I feel like modern first world culture really does destroy gut health. You know, the overuse of antibiotics, you know, especially in childhood, in, ch in childhood with, you know, ear infections and things which can be linked to yes. vaccinations and, you know, things like that. And vaccinations have been linked to dysbiosis and truly altering, yeah. you know, gut health and but then we also have toxins that are sprayed in the air and sprayed on the food. And so we just have this onslaught of for our gut health and the the microbiome that's there. And then as you kind of talked about this too, we're like stress and sleep and things, right? So we have all the light pollution, which, you know, negatively impacts sleep and people not spending time outside and all this stuff that plays a role in, in just disease. And I think what I love that you stress is like, yeah, you know, it is metabolic dysfunction, but then the next domino is insulin resistance or, you know, the hyper insulation. Um, what did you call it? So hyperinsulinemia. So it's, it's an elevated level of insulin in the blood, which then many years later leads to insulin resistance, right. which is the tissues in the body stop responding to insulin. And that's happening younger and younger. That used to be an yes. adult disease that's now coming into childhood yeah well I, i'm 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 old enough marianne to type 2 to type 2 diabetes when when i first qualified as a pharmacist was called maturity onset diabetes or sugar diabetes yeah you know there's a clue there isn't there but and um, but it's not maturity onset diabetes anymore we're getting teenagers or even eight and nine year olds with type 2 diabetes 
you know it's extremely sad but yeah. it is this modern you know hypertoxic environment that we live in you know and, and like you say it's the water it's the air it's the it's the the light pollution the emfs it's it's the food it's you know it's the glyphosate in all in almost all produced manufactured foods and it's very hard to escape from but i i've come to i, I did go through a phase of being really quite scared by the future if you like mm -hmm. and and seeing it as very inevitable that we were going to succumb to all of this but i've come to believe that the human body is an amazing I mean, it, it, you know, it's amazing creation, let's say that. And it, I believe our bodies can heal anything if we give them the right, if we give our bodies the right tools to do so. So I now believe that there, there is only one disease, which is this metabolic dysfunction. You can, you can leave all the labels that the doctors have learned. You can leave those at your front door or leave them in the, the, the doctor's consulting room, certainly. And all you need to do is focus on your metabolic health. And that really is a product of your, an absence of stress and that stress of all kinds. It's, it's, it's mental and emotional stress, but it's also physical traumas. It could be traumas in your childhood that you haven't resolved. It could even be traumas in your parents' lives while you were in the womb or even before you were conceived. I think I'm, I'm now a great believer in intergenerational um, stresses that are passed down. Mm -hmm. finding ways to address things in your life that have caused you stress and I've, I've been doing this repeatedly over the last two or three years and I'm, I'm remembering things that I'd forgotten that even made me stressed but I think that's my body saying right you're now ready to deal with this Graham you know we've hidden this away in your head for 40 years but we now the conditions are now right for you to deal with this so here it is and you know of course you know you remember it and if you feel oh why why why, why am I thinking you know, about this today? But it's because your body, you should see it as a good sign. Your body's having faith in you that you can restore your health with, you know, with the, dealing with that trauma. So stress, I think, is a big one. And then it's the, it's the presence of all of the right nutrition in your body. And that goes you know, from you know, the, the proteins, the fats, not so many carbohydrates, but we have essential proteins, we have essential fats, there are no essential carbohydrates. I do want to point uh, out, because uh, I think that people might question like, you know, because they think, oh, macros are so important, but proteins can be converted into carbohydrates if the body needs them. So yes. carbohydrates yeah. are non-essential, truly. We need the protein, we need the fat, but carbohydrates yeah. are non-essential. Yes. So the way, in fact, I'll, the analogy I used with my, my doctors at work, my GPs, because they believed your body can make anything out of anything. And I said, uh, sorry, that's not quite the case. Um, the reason we have essential amino acids, essential proteins, if you like, is because our body can't make them, so we need to eat them. And we have essential fats, exactly the same. But there are no essential carbohydrates. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're looking to make something, let's use an analogy of um, a bridge, you know, you, you, you know, you're the construction company and you, you need all the right bits of steel and concrete and bits of wood and all the rest of it. But if the, you don't get supplied with all of the essential bits but, and they send some substitute bits in their place and you just stick them all together and hope that it works, your bridge isn't going to last very long. But that's what the body does. It, it, will, it will always substitute in your tissues something that's fairly close to the essential component that is missing. And it will get you by for a while. I mean, you can ask orthopedic surgeons about the, the ligaments that they see, you know, in people who've eaten, you know, there are lots of poofers and the, the wrong types of fats. You know, the ligaments are, are a different color and they're not as strong. So the body will still make a ligament. It will still make connective tissue and cartilage, etc. but it won't do the job as well. So the presence of essential nutrients is, um, is absolutely key. I, I used to be a competitive cyclist and athlete and i used to live on carbohydrates i used to eat sugar 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 it was the athletic diet like the long the yeah, long distance yeah. runner diet you know marathon diet all of that yeah, well, yeah exactly well i i i became a long distance runner and i started doing ultra marathons and i started i was training for a five-day ultra marathon that was about 10 hours per day through the welsh mountains and i this was at the time i was recovering my gut health and i started Hmm, maybe I don't need carbohydrates. Maybe I, my body can make energy from fat. And if I need sugar, it will 
make the sugar, the glucose that I need. And actually, I don't need that much glucose because my heart runs on fat. So, you know, your heart runs on butyrate, on fat. It doesn't run on glucose. Your brain mostly runs on butyrate, on fat, bit of glucose. And what I, what I discovered, Mariam, was I, I could run fasted. I could wake up and not have breakfast and I could run fasted for about five hours. Which is crazy. You know, I, I and this was just crazy. That, yeah. And I was used to eating carbohydrates every 20 minutes. So that was a massive revelation to me that the human body. So I actually put on one of these continuous glucose monitors. Mm hmm. So I wore one for a month because I'd, I'd gone to a, you know, a carnivore diet, which, mm -hmm. you know, not for everybody, but I'd gone full carnivore. And to this day, I've hardly eaten any fruit or vegetables for about five, six years now. And my blood glucose is absolutely flat. You know, it doesn't matter what I eat. It stays at baseline glucose. no matter what. It's, it's on the boat. And it's actually at a level that, that the doctors would be concerned about they'd say you're actually hypoglycemic you've got too little blood sugar you're going to pass out you know we need to give you some gatorade or whatever you know you know here's some sugar because you're in danger of falling over and and uh, of course i haven't you know in that five or six years and i've I, I did quite well in my race actually for my age um and you know so the you know the the fat powered graham was was my superpower because i i watched everybody around me eating all their their carbohydrates and having their you know their the full little, sugar cokes and the gels you know and the, the, gels. Sports, the sports gels yeah yeah and I, I watched them get headaches i watched them be violently sick and i watched them you know have a have a spurt and then crash you know so they would overtake me then i would overtake them and then they'd come back and, and at the end of the day i they were way behind me and you know the fat powered graham you know did very well so that taught me a lot so you know, your the, the presence of the right macros and micronutrients, you know, your minerals, your vitamins, all of that's super important. And, you know, the, the more I read about this, I mean, the thing, thing, you know, magne I think we all know about magnesium. Mm -hmm. We probably know, uh, I mean, did you, do you talk about iodine supplementation? At all? I have not talked about that at all. So let's hear yeah, it. Okay. So I think we are all deficient in iodine. The whole iodine story is very interesting. The iodine in the chemical, uh, the periodic table, it's it's a halide. So iodine, chlorine, fluorine, bromine are all in the same chemical group. So if your body hasn't got enough iodine, a bit like we were saying about the bridge, it will find another element from that group and use that instead. So it'll use chlorine. So we are surrounded by chlorine, aren't we? It's everywhere. Everywhere. Increasingly, we're surrounded by bromine. Bromine is everywhere. And so what happens is our thyroid uses these, you know, the, the chlorine and the fluorine and the bromine as substitutes for iodine. And our thyroid hormones don't then don't work properly. And the doctors say, well, you've got hypothyroidism, you've got Hashimoto's, or you might have thyroid cancer. And of course, the treatment is a drug. And right. the treatment is never iodine. In fact, we're taught to fear iodine, which is an, it's a bit like the Ansel Keys story and, and fat. You know, iodine has been demonized and you, I, I would I would say it's been demonized on purpose for a reason, which is to make us chronically unwell. Boron is another one. Yeah. Boron is essential for human health. It did used to be, I mean, all, all these things were available in our soils and in our plants, but they've been depleted from the soils over the last hundred years. Yeah, modern you know, farming practices, the non-rotating, yeah. the lack of manure, the lack of blood meal, the lack of exactly. biodiversity has really yeah. done us a huge disservice. It has. So all of these micronutrients are missing from our soils, so we need to put them back. So iodine, bromine are big ones. Iodine is huge for women's health. Mm -hmm whether it's hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, the menopausal symptoms, breast cancer, you know, ovarian, um, you know, gyne gynecological issues, you know, iodine is almost always implicated in all of those. So the, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, there's a book called The Iodine Crisis, which I think you can get as a free PDF download. It's an amazing read and it is just full of case studies of people who've used iodine. So the, the, the original doctor who used iodine is Professor Lugol. So you may be familiar with Lugol's iodine. Mm -hmm. So Lugol used very high doses of iodine, doses that modern doctors would say are extremely toxic, and they're not they're at all. So uh, if people want to look into iodine, I would say go with caution because you 
what happens is when you start supplementing with iodine, your body will replace the, the chlorine, the fluorine, the bromine with iodine. What then happens is the, the chlorine, fluorine, bromine end up in your blood and you start to feel quite unwell until you've passed them out in your urine. So the, the, the way to deal with that sort of nauseating feeling is to drink salt water and, and just flush them out. But I'd say go slowly. There are protocols out there if people want to look into it. So but iodine is very essential. So the, the, the three pillars, if you like, so it's stress, it's nutrition, the absence of the, sorry, the, the presence of the right nutrients. And then the third one is the absence of toxins, which is tricky, isn't it? Quite um, difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I've learned, Marianne, is that, you know, rather than seeking to add something to make yourself more healthy, think about something you can take away. So we've all got very complex, busy lives. Rather than reaching for the next magic thing on the shelf, think about, well, what could I take away that is not helping my body? You know, and that, that may be a food that you really like, but it's not serving you. It's not helping you. It may be, it may be your Wi-Fi router at night. You know, um, it may be the blue light, you know, your, your iPhone or your TV computer screen after it's gone dark. You know, it could be a lots of things, but just try one thing and give it a week. And then be honest with yourself, how does my body feel? And what, one thing I've learned to do is, is tune much more into my body, you know, and say, okay, how, if I'm really honest, how do, I, how, how do I feel about this now? To kind of jump in there, a lot of people have been taught not to trust their body. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is they're so used to feeling bad that they don't notice when they feel good. Yes, correct. You know, so usually what happens is, is people start making changes and then they revert or fall off the wagon, whatever people want to call it. And then they feel awful and they go, wow, I didn't realize how good I was feeling. So the, the journey to learning how to listen to your body does take time. So I just kind of wanted to interject there that sometimes you won't recognize when you're feeling better until you do something that something that makes you feel worse. Absolutely. So I just want, I wanted to kind of health coach that in there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. And I mean, that was my experience with the sort of going carnivore, if you like, because I think I'd, I'd saw it, seen it as the alternate elimination diet. Because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't work out what it was that wasn't working for me. So I thought, well, let's just take everything out <laughs> and yeah. eat eggs and steak. You know, and I kind of went on a steak and egg diet for um, for about a month. And then you add one thing back in, don't you? So, well, I'll try, I'll try, you know, uh, red, red kidney beans. Is, do you call them kidney beans in, in the US? We do. Yes. Yeah. So, and you very quickly, or I learned very quickly, no, they do not suit me. I, I immediately knew, and I'm getting very good at this now. I can almost, if something's in my mouth within a, a minute or two, I know I get a buzz in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to have to wait several hours and, oh, I've got some gut pains, but my body's getting, or maybe I'm getting much better at, at listening to the messages that were always there, but I couldn't hear them. Yeah, no, um, I kind of, I have had that same experience, you know, elimination diets are, are quite powerful and people tend to, there's different theories on, you know, whether they're good or bad and everything and how long to do them and things like that. But I think the most important thing is if you eliminate, you have to make sure whatever you're including is super nutrient dense, you know, Correct. and yeah. again, with, you know, I think Northern Europeans do a lot better on like high fat, high protein diets. I'm Northern European mm. myself, and I, I do thrive mm. on that type of diet with a lot more protein, a lot more fat, and a lot less carbs, um, you know, versus mm. somebody from Asian descent, you know, yeah. would probably not do as well. But yeah, like the the power of elimination, but to also make sure we're getting all those nutrients at the same time, which is what you made sure to do. And I also find that most modern first world countries and stuff are super protein deficient. We're told that, you know, 46 grams RDA is all you need, mm. which is bare, just enough to, to not die. It's not even nearly enough yeah. to, to even remotely thrive. I think they found the bare minimum for women. And I'm assuming that the woman's like five foot tall, like I am is like the bare minimum is 80. Right. And then there's research showing that the bare minimum is a hundred, you know, and then for yeah. men, you, it goes way up from there. And so I think a lot of what happens is we're just so deficient in amino acids and the minerals that come in protein. People think that protein is, you know, animal-based protein is just amino acids when it's literally super mineral Mm -hmm. dense and we get vitamin A, which people are also really scared of, but it's essential for immune Mm -hmm. regulation and 
all of that. The, the great thing about the elimination diet is you are able to quickly see how poorly something makes you feel. Yes. Yes. And I think you, you, you um, reminded me of a good point there. And there's I, what I've learned over the last few years is that, you know, there is just vitamin A isn't one thing. There is the animal vitamin A and there are, you know, plant vitamin A equivalents. And even if you are eating, let's say a plant full of vitamin A, your body will have to convert it into the into the human vitamin A equivalent. And that may need trace minerals or, or, or elements like copper or manganese or something like that. You know, the enzymes that do that might rely on something, you know, tiny. And if you haven't got those in abundance, then you're not going to be able to convert the the, the plant vitamins into the animal active vitamin. Um, so I, I, I'm not an expert on those. I'm, I'm sure you could tell me a lot about those things, but I, it's something I learned, uh, which which explains the why, why some people's whole food yeah. diet doesn't work for them. You know, and we we're, we're probably getting into the sort of gut dysbiosis and the the microbiome because I. You know, I think our the the microbes in our gut actually do a lot of that pre-processing mm-hmm. for us, don't they? They they pre-digest our food and convert it into chemicals that, firstly, we can absorb, and secondly, that is the human active form. So we are a symbiotic organism, and I think the the absence of some of these essential microbes, and this is a, a very new science, isn't it? Or Extremely in terms of an understood science, yeah. yeah the absence of them is is critical, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, I feel like in a lot of, again, with antibiotics and glyphosate and things like that, that are in, you know, that are just wiping out mm-hmm. our microbiome. Like we don't even, a lot of modern people don't even have the strains to break down oxalates so that we're seeing kidney stones and things. So yeah, our microbiome is so important, whether yes. you have gut issues or not taking care of your microbiome and, you know, a big portion of that is food, but a lot of times it's even replacing certain strains. We now know that, you know, people who struggle with weight gain and inability to lose weight, despite how healthy they eat or how much they exercise are actually lacking certain strains of uh, bacteria, probiotics in their gut. And, you know, we're Mm. discovering what those are. And so there's brands out there that say this strain helps with weight loss and you take it and you are all of a sudden able to metabolize and absorb nutrients and things like that. And, um, you know, everybody's like, oh, my stomach doesn't hurt. I don't need to worry about that. That's, that's not how this works. No, absolutely. And and there's there's a lot of pharmaceutical drugs that actually greatly harm your microbiome. So you, you, you mentioned antibiotics. I mean, obviously, they are antibiotic, anti-life. So, and there's a lot of evidence that people who've taken repeated courses of antibiotics have, you know, a, a much less diverse gut microbiome. And they are then much more susceptible to other infections and also to other diseases simply because their gut microbiome has changed. There's been human and animal studies where they can actually transplant the sort of, let's just say, bowel contents for now and take them out of one animal and put them into the other. And the, the disease follows the the, the transplanted bowel contents. Yeah. So it's you've got proof there. But there's so many other drug groups that are harmful to the microbiome. I mean, oh. we've got proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, that are widely used for acid stomach, acid reflux, but they, they obviously... They reduce the amount of acid in your stomach, but they greatly change the gut microbiome right through your body. They, they have lots of other unwelcome effects in the body as well, but they they very quickly change the way your healthy microbes exist in your gut. Metformin, we've talked about metformin's used for type 2 diabetes. And it, the I, th- I think it actually works by changing your gut microbiome anyway. So it reduces the availability of glucose so you, if you eat a lot of sugar, the metformin changes the, the bugs in your gut so that sugar isn't as available to you. And so therefore you, your blood sugar is reduced. You know, that's actually how it works. So that one definitely changes your gut microbiome. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, metformin is a poorly understood drug, it, but I think that's one of its mechanisms of action. It actually changes your gut microbiome, you know, in a way which is seen as helpful, you know, oh, we'll, we'll you know, that, that you know, cake that you've just eaten is now not as full of sugar as it was because you've got different bugs that have eaten the sugar uh, because you take metformin, Um, you know, so and that's been seen as a good thing. Um, But of course, we've changed the gut microbiome. Um, There's so many other drug groups. I mean, um, you've had the, you know, the the, uh, morphine type painkiller crisis has gone around the Western world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
um, you know, morphine-type drugs, painkillers act uh, to change the gut microbiome, as do anti-inflammatory drugs yeah. um, like ibuprofen. They change the gut microbiome. Even things like antidepressant drugs, we've got SSRIs. It's like, um, you know, that they change the, I mean, most, well, I'll say, maybe I can't say most. Let's just say the, the receptors that we have in our gut, you know, are actually very similar to the receptors we have in our brain. There's a very close link between the gut and the brain. Right. There's a direct link, you know, the vagus nerve, and there's a lot of evidence that the bugs in our gut actually make hormones or make chemical messengers that, signal to our brain you know so we're actually listening to the bugs in our gut when we trust our intuition or our gut feeling we all say gut feeling don't we okay so where does that come from yeah so any well let's just say quite a lot of drugs that work on the brain probably will change the way your gut works as well because there's that close linkage and i can think of people that are on so so many drugs and you know antidepressants and all of that and it just also makes me think about how there was that study in the seventies about schizophrenia and gluten and how they mm. removed gluten and a hundred percent remission. They reintroduced gluten and a hundred percent everybody became symptomatic and started having, you know, symptoms again. And, yeah. you know, and so it's like, yeah, our outside world impacts our inside world so Absolutely. much. And, and I, I, uh, I, I learned about lectins. So mm -hmm. gluten, yeah, you'll be familiar with lectins. So yep. um, gluten, so there's, there's a group of uh, plant tiny proteins called lectins and gluten is one of them. And the plants use them basically as toxins, uh, as, as poisons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, plants don't want you to eat the bits of the plant that are about reproduction. So they don't want their seeds eaten because, but they, they might want to let you, let you eat their leaves in order to spread the seeds, but they don't really want the seeds to be eaten. So they put poisons in, in their seeds and the parts of the plants who don't want to eat them. But, uh, us to eat but of course we cook them and eat them anyway and we're often told that they're good for us but if they contain lectins and we have gut dysbiosis and that's progressed to leaky gut you know those mm -hmm. those lectins can get through the gut wall and into the blood and they then become you know concentrated in our tissues and then our own body starts to fight the the, the poison if you like that's in our own tissues and there's a lot of evidence that you know thyroid conditions even things like alzheimer's uh, mm -hmm. parkinson's disease there's a link to gut dysbiosis to leaky gut and to the presence of poisons if you like toxins in our food that have got into our bloodstream that would otherwise pass straight through us and be eliminated an autoimmune diet removes yeah. lectins that's like one of the big ones yes. and when we remove them we see most autoimmune symptoms reverse quite quickly. I would say, you know, depending on the age, the younger they are, we see three to six months, the older people are when mm. they become symptomatic, we're looking at anywhere from nine to 18 months usually. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I wanted to throw that out there because a lot of my audience is struggling with chronic disease, autoimmune disease, and, mm. you know, lectins are one of those groups that we want to minimize as much as possible because it does help with symptoms and making sure you start feeling better. Yes, yes. And I, I can per personally attest to that. You know, I, I was never gluten intolerant, but I believe I'm multiple lectin intolerant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that, that was something I discovered probably only about five or six years ago. And it's not taught in medical schools. Pharmacists don't know about it. You know, the dietitians the, uh, don't really know about it either. No, no I don't. You know, they're, they're taught the food pyramid, whatever the government says is what they're taught. And yeah. if you want to learn about actual health and how food actually impacts the body, you have to go outside and study yourself yeah. and be willing to trust your gut when you're reading the mm -hmm. studies. And, you know, I've read books from all spectrums, you know, from vegan to carnivore and everything in between. And I mean, really the foundation is the thing that's the same as whole food. And then from there, it's a lot of bio-individuality, I think. Mm. But there's there's certain foundational principles that just are universal no matter what. And if you're struggling with health, you know, there's there's just certain foundational things. And if you're not struggling with health yet, you probably will if you're not following these foundational principles. Yes, exactly. And as I, you know, I, I've got my my two children are in their twenties now and I, you know, I'm I've I'm doing my very best to help them understand that the world they've grown up in is more toxic and less nutritious than the world I grew up in. So they've got to be 
on their guard and more careful than I had to be. Yeah, it does require a lot more effort these days for sure. Let's talk about a little bit. Let's talk about the like, let's wrap everything back together and talk about these foundational Mm. principles that if what can people start doing today? You know, you talked about your three things. Let's kind of review those again and maybe give people like really solid places to start. Yeah, so so the three things are the the stress in your life, the the presence of the right uh, building blocks or nutrition, minerals, micronutrients, and the absence of toxins. You know, so those are the three foundations. But I, I would add to that with as best as you can live your life in tune with your environment. So the the for those of us that live quite away from the equator, our seasons are very different in day length. Mm-hmm. And um, if that's where you're naturally from, then try try as much as you can to live your life in tune with daylight. So eat, you know, I'm, I'm a great fan of, you know, one meal a day or maybe two meals a day or a, or a sort of narrow eating window. I don't see it as a restriction. I see it as an um, opportunity for my body to, you know, rest and, and digest and recover outside of those times. So, so if I can eat in a four or six hour window, you know, my body's got um, all those other hours in which to do the cleaning, you know, clean out all the toxins and rest and recover. We can't all go to bed. I mean, here in the UK where I live in the winter, it gets dark at about four o'clock in the afternoon and it doesn't get light till about nine in the morning. And then in the summer, it's light at um, three in the morning and it doesn't get dark till about 11 o'clock at night. Now, I, I can't do that, but uh, you can live a bit closer to those things, even if you're working. You know, and it is hard if you're doing a night shift work or, you know, you're working different shifts. I understand that. But if if you can do something to move closer to the natural rhythms of the world where you live and the, the presence of daylight and live, try and be outside more in the daylight, be out there with without sunglasses. You know, I, I've I've even I even do I, I look, watch the sun at sunrise and sunset. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually look directly at the sun and get the red light. I find that very therapeutic. I I stand on, on the grass with bare feet as much as I can. You know, I earth. I spend time in nature. So I think all of those are really important. Tr- trying to eliminate blue light, you know, from... I mean, I've, I've definitely spent a lot of my time in front of computer screens, you know, working. But only recently have I discovered, you know, blue blocking glasses and... The, the filters that you can have on the software that you can have on your computer to reduce the blue light. Mm-hmm. So I think those are, those are some very simple things you can do, you know, that just the blue blocking and uh, absence of artificial light at night, you know, artificial light at night, Alan, mm-hmm. I think is the way to remember it. So if you can minimize Alan in your life, that will, I think, you know, go quite a long way to helping you start to move forward with your health. And then if you can, be honest with yourself about the stresses in your life and just just take little things little steps maybe once a week to either remove a stress or acknowledge the stress and then aim to to find a way to minimize it we can't all change our jobs overnight or move house live in a different part of the city etc but you, we can all do a little bit and i think it's it's just a slow gradual progressive change isn't it mm-hmm. that will is sustainable i'm a great believer in doing what's sustainable even if it's slow but you know aim for the things that you can sustain and make a routine for yourself I think that that would be one of my biggest um, tips for people awesome that's my tip too is what what's sustainable and a little bit at a time I think especially especially here in America we like go big or go home it's all or nothing and it's like no like what again what is one thing that you can focus on whether it's this week or maybe for the whole month depending on what you're tackling you know and if it's like i mean blue light is i feel like it's huge right and it's like down can you download an app that where starting you know at sunset it's a blue light blocker and on my computers like i have the blue light the blue light filters like i'm not a, like a photographer or anything so i don't have to look at actual light you know and and, yeah. and a judge color so i'm able to do that and then i wear glasses so my glasses have blue light blockers in them um my contacts yeah. uh, uh, this is how they're made now they have blue light blockers in them yeah. but then i i take them off for the sun right cuz we do need some mm. blue light from outside 
you know, yes. so at, at the, the right, right time, time of day, day and all of that, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then everybody thinks they need these gadgets, right? Oh, I need the red lights, you know, the little $2,000 bar where I have to sit in front mm -hmm. of it. No, you can mm -hmm. watch the sunrise and the sunset, you know, does that mean you have to wake up yeah. and be intentional? Yeah, you're probably gonna have to wake up, you know, mm -hmm. but the payoff and just being outside all day, you know, it gives your brain a break. It gives you a nature break. It makes you more effective. It reduces your stress and actually improves your sleep. So yes. it's, really simple things can have a huge impact in multiple areas. And I think that I love that you talked. It's just, you just need to do a little bit and, and, and mm. build from there. Yeah. It's, you know, every great journey begins with one step, doesn't it? As they say, True. take that first step. Well, thank mm. you so much for joining us and just sharing so much valuable information and sharing your story. It's truly incredible and inspiring and i can't wait to hear what people have to say um so if people wanted to connect with you or learn more about you and learn more about your story how can they how can they reach out to you or get to know you better yeah so i'm i'm working with a lovely group of people um so i when when i first left the nhs i i was in a very vulnerable place and i i sought sanctuary really with a group of people who wrote have written a book called the red pill revolution and I, I think you might have already spoken to a couple of the authors of that book. Is that right? Yep. I've spoken to John Gusty. You're my second one. So we got more coming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so along with John, there's um, Dr. Jeremy Ayres, who's a naturopractic consultant here in the UK, although he's lived and worked all around the world. And John and Jeremy have been amazing to me and take me under their wing. So you can find me on the redpillrevolution.com. I'm, I've become known as the red pill pharmacist. That's awesome. Which is love. And then, so I'm, I'm also working with Jeremy on another venture, which is called Naturally Better. So you can find, I mean, Jeremy Ayers will share his links, I'm sure, but jeremyayers.com links to Naturally Better. So we are building a true health community because as we started, the, there is no health in healthcare or there's very little health in healthcare. So let's go back to where, where health or what healthcare should really be. So you can find me on those websites and then hopefully um, before too long, I'm, I'm currently writing two books. So I'm, I'm writing a book, um, which is essentially my story intertwined with the history of medicine. So how, how did we come to live in a, an allopathic world? What happened? You know, where did it go so wrong? When did it go wrong and who did it? You know, um, so that's one book. And then the other book is, as, as you rightly indicated earlier on, there are some bits of the allopathic system that we would want to keep. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the urgent care and trauma care is actually very good and very necessary, but an awful lot of the chronic long-term care is definitely not worth keeping. So my second book is, is about what do we keep and move on with and what do we leave behind? That might well be a smaller book. I think the second book will be an easier read, a bit like a quick reference guide, if you like, and help people connect with this true health space that we live in now. Mm -hmm. You know, if people are if people have put their GP, their their consultant, their practitioner on a pedestal. That um, it's going to take some understanding to for them to move away from that. And my, my aim is to reach the average person out there who's been a healthcare believer. Mm -hmm. And he's starting to doubt, you know, they're starting to become dissatisfied with the system. So that's my target population, if you like, because I've, I've been doing, I've been doing talks and um, I've done a few internet appearances, sort of, you know, um, TV, internet TV appearances, but I know I'm talking to the, the, the converted, you know, and yeah. I want to reach the people who have been victims really of a system that they trusted. And that, that's my that's my passion now. That's my goal. That's my mission for the next chapter in my life. Well, I am so excited for you. And I can't wait for those books to come out because I'm definitely mm. going to be reading them. You know, I am one of those that's broken free of the matrix. But I also have this goal of getting people who are dissatisfied, you know, especially chronic illness. Modern medicine can do very little for you. Mm. And when there's so much in your in your power and in your control, and I feel like that's both of our missions is to let people know that they are in control of their health. And here Absolutely. are the tools to get you there. It's just so powerful. And it and it's not difficult. It's not difficult. Change is hard, <laughs> but it's not difficult. 
you know and so thank you again so much for coming on i really enjoyed it thank you thank you so much for hanging out with me today if you found this episode helpful would you do me a favor and help others find it by leaving a review sharing a screenshot on social media or sharing the link with a friend by you sharing what you've learned others are able to find this podcast and join our community Be sure to check out my website, www.roadtolivingwhole.com for over 160 delicious recipes, a variety of meal plans, and a blog packed full of even more healthy living tips. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with me as your coach, you can schedule a free consult through www.roadtolivingwhole.com backslash health-coaching backslash. Until next time, friend. Bye.